Kia ora and welcome to the Dawn Chorus. This is my daily podcast that I put out for paying subscribers via the Kaka, which is my substack about Aotearoa's political economy, what's happening in the global economy and in geopolitics with a focus on housing affordability, climate change and poverty reduction. Yesterday, new Prime Minister Chris Hipkins, freshly sworn in, had his first public meeting and he made a point of having it with small and large business leaders in Auckland. I went along to the news conferences held immediately after that meeting in the Chamber of Commerce and uh, asked questions along with others of both Chris Hipkins and Simon Bridges. Essentially, the meeting became very quickly a discussion about migration settings. Simon Bridges said that business leaders told Chris Hipkins he needed to loosen the migration settings, and not just for skilled workers, but for lower skilled, lower paid workers as well. Chris Hipkins came out afterwards and said yes, he had heard that call and was open to the idea of pulling on the migration lever, loosening migration settings to increase population growth, to take some pressure off wage growth, although he didn't specify that, but that's the effect of it, and also to um, increase the amount of workers there to fuel the tourism, hospitality and agriculture sectors. Now this isn't too shocking because for the last year and a half or so, uh, businesses coming out of COVID have discovered a big drop in the number of people there applying for jobs, in part because, of course, our borders were closed for two and a half years, which meant a lot of backpackers, international students and temporary workers weren't able to get in. The government tried to tighten the migration settings early last year and initially announced a tighter set of rules in April-May, but almost immediately under pressure from businesses who were concerned about staff shortages, who were having to close their shops and cafes early, and who were worried about wage inflation, uh, argued that there needed to be not just more skilled workers, but a return to the big numbers of unskilled uh, workers in hospitality and agriculture. Remember that just before COVID, we had a net migration of over 100,000. And over the last 10 years, New Zealand's, 10 years before COVID, New's population growth has been between one and a half and two percent per year compound. That is the fastest population growth in the developed world. It helped fuel. Uh, a lot of the economic growth that uh, Aotearoa has seen over the last 20 years, but it was low-quality, low-wage growth. What we saw was an overall increase in nominal GDP growth, but growth in output per hour worked, and therefore real wages, was lower than in other developed economies. And that's largely because the government has not invested heavily enough in the public infrastructure, which helps grow productivity. So that means public transport, telecommunications, uh, health, education, those things that help keep people healthy and sane 
and productive and ensures that the kids who are growing up uh, in our country are able to graduate and work and turn up to work on time and be healthy and um, productive. We haven't seen as much of that over the last 20 to 30 years, in part because of decisions made 30 years ago to squeeze investment in public infrastructure and to erode the quality of our social safety net. The ongoing pattern now is that parties of the centre-left and centre-right, so mainly National and mainly Labour, have over the last 20 years effectively made a set of decisions to ensure they got voted back in. Now that meant keeping the size of government relatively low, keeping the tax take part of the economy at around about 30% of GDP, significantly lower than it was before 1984, and doing it without a tax on capital gains or residential land. Now this puts us at odds with every other developed country in the world and has completely skewed investment into dead residential land assets, which of course are tax-free and able to be leveraged because you can get a loan from a bank. Makes no sense really in New Zealand to invest in a company or a business which makes money out of making people more productive or selling selling a product or a service overseas. The returns are never as good as leveraged investment in tax-free gains in land values. So you essentially start to reorient your entire view of the economy to enhance those leveraged tax-free gains in residential land values. And it makes an awful lot of sense, therefore, to have your population continuing to grow quite strongly, but to grow without the infrastructure needed to house and transport and keep healthy and educate that population. So when you are really keen on keeping wage inflation and overall inflation low, why? Because you need low interest rates, low mortgage rates to keep land prices up, then of course you vote for a low tax, high migration, low investment economy. Both parties have recognised this, they haven't said it out loud, and neither actually have many voters. Because the alternative is to essentially understand that to make this sustainable, you have to have a lot more infrastructure spending, or somehow you need to stop the population growth. Now, early last year, Labour's solution, an attempt to square the circle to make it more sustainable, was to try to restrict the population growth by tightening the migration settings. That lasted about two or three months before Michael Wood was made the Migration Minister, Chris Farfoy left, and he has progressively over the last eight months loosened the migration settings already uh, in three steps. Firstly, there's been the reopening of the skilled migrant category uh, for residency visas, a reopening of the parental category for residency visas, a big increase in the registered seasonal employer scheme to help Uh, fruit and uh, wine growers uh, pick their crops and we've also seen significant increases in the quotas for lower skilled lower wage migrants into meat processing agriculture and tourism but that's only the beginning and national have obviously called for a significant increase in the loosening of these settings and businesses are also calling for it as well. Right now they face major labour shortages, 
calls for higher wages from their existing workers and uh, it's uh, the first thing you jump for when you want to solve that problem of how do you grow uh, without having to invest heavily in new technology or new systems or new business models. You just add more labour and hopefully you can add it cheaply. That works both ways because extra population growth without infrastructure investment again fuels the rise in leveraged tax-free land values. So we're at a point in the electoral cycle where Labour have realised they're behind National in the polls. National is calling for a return to the cheap and easy growth option of looser migration settings without infrastructure investment and is calling obviously for the cancellation of the main new rail tunnels from the CBD to the airport, the cancellation of Let's Get Wellington moving tunnels, and a return to the um, low-wage, low-investment, high-population growth, high-land-price growth model that we had before. And um, it's very attractive to many people on uh, who are median voters, people living in standalone homes, in the suburbs and the provinces of New Zealand, living a good life where they're in a, a, a single-storey standalone home with a backyard and a barbecue, and they're able to afford their mortgage if they have one, and uh, live in hope that their kids will be able to afford the same sort of lifestyle. The problem in the long run is that this creates enormous pressures on those people who are not not part of those that median voter group. So we're talking here about renters, so a good 45 to 50% of the population and a higher proportion of the young population live in rented property. Almost all of it is private rental property. And uh, the uh, current uh, stress, and it's been there for at least a decade and it's been most intense in the last five or six years, is that more than half of those people who rent are paying more than 30% of their disposable income for rent. And in fact, a quarter of people who rent, and it's a high proportion of people who have children, are paying more than 40% of their disposable income in rent. That is the least affordable and the most housing stress for renters in the developed world. Now you may argue, well that's fine, they just need to buy a house and um, uh, they need to do what everyone else does, which is go and ask for a deposit from their parents. But of course, many of those people have parents who are renters themselves and certainly don't have the equity to provide. Now this all seems reasonably sustainable uh, uh, until you realise that it's driving a lot of people who aren't part of the landlord class out of the country to Australia. Now, up until now, particularly for the last 20 years or so, there's been a handbrake on that outflow of New Zealanders to Australia. The Australian government, back in 2001, under John Howard, essentially said if you were a New Zealand resident working in Australia, you couldn't get the same benefits of an Australian citizen so you pay all your taxes, but you don't get the same health benefits, the same education benefits. Your kids end up paying much higher fees. You don't necessarily get help when you fall out of work. And in recent years, if you committed some sort of crime and ended up in prison, you'd get deported back to New Zealand. That was the status quo for a good 20 years in Australia until 
the election last year of the new Labour government of Anthony Albanese. He is very much pro-migration, and he faces a business community which is calling for exactly the same thing our business community is calling for, lots of migrants, because they've got a labour shortage after COVID in the same way that we do. So, in the last 6 to 12 months, Anthony Albanese has massively increased the quota for importing skilled and other types of workers from around the world, and is very keen to encourage more New Zealanders to come and live in Australia, and to stay in Australia once they're there, so not go for a few years and then bounce back across the Tasman, to stay in Australia. So we've got 600,000 at least New Zealand residents who are now living in Australia, many of whom are often forced back home because they can't really start families and lives there. Once New Zealanders have the same rights as Australian residents to public services, health, education, it becomes much more attractive not only to stay, but for those who are still here to go. By my back-of-the-envelope estimates, you've got 600,000 people in Australia who will stay, so they won't come back. And you've got about a million people in New Zealand who have some sort of skills but have given up or have very little hope of ever owning their own home and starting a family in a stable, effective way here. Simply because the rents are too high, the deposits are too high and the the, uh, house prices are too high, particularly when you've got high mortgage rates. So when you put your society under this sort of stress, you eventually have escape valves. When you heat up the pot, the valve starts whistling. And in Aotearoa, the main way that you see the stress show in a high churn economy where you're focused on increasing land prices and not investing in infrastructure while having high population growth is you see the escape valve, the obvious signs of stress, in the immigration rates to Australia, which have escalated in the last year to over 30,000 New Zealanders leaving to live in Australia, and secondly, in rapidly escalating uh, costs for health and for justice, because there are now so many people who have been left by the wayside, who've had 30 or 40 years of living in too expensive, cold, mouldy, insecure housing, haven't been educated properly, aren't healthy, and understandably are not able to be productive or work as long or turn up on time or or be uh, what many employers want them to be. And at the same time, they're having to go to hospitals, they're stressing that system with uh, uh, issues such as diabetes, obviously the COVID epidemic, uh, all sorts of health issues, mental health issues, which are the result of effectively 30 years of underinvestment combined with rapid population growth and all sorts of uh, uh, er erosions of the public safety net and of public life. So those are the two escape valves, immigration figures and health and justice costs. We obviously are seeing those costs escalate and that's causing extra stress on budgets. And uh, we're also seeing the health and justice costs escalate. At some point, the median voters who love the current high churn, high house prices, high immigration, low investment strategy will ask themselves 
if it's working for them. It's working for them financially. They're very, very rich. And if they can afford to help out their kids with deposits, then everything's fine. The problem becomes when you don't want to help out your kids with the deposits, or you aren't able to, or you don't want to take the risk of leveraging up even more, or hoping that your son or daughter doesn't hook up with um, someone who is not of your liking, that you eventually uh, uh, see the stress in the system. And you ask yourself, what's the point of having a multi-million dollar house in the suburbs with the backyard and the boat? and the big Christmas celebrations, when the only time I see my kids and watch my grandkids grow up is either via Skype or when they can come back to New Zealand or I can go to Australia. We saw during COVID when we had two years we couldn't easily go back and forth across the Tasman how stressful that was. And that stress will grow from April 24 next year, or actually this year, April 24 this year, when Anthony Albanese is widely expected to open up the rules for New Zealand residents to live in Australia, get quick pathway to full residency rights, and essentially unleash a flood to really open up that escape valve for the high-churn economy. We'll see. Currently, Labour is doing what it has done for the last 20 or 30 years, and in exactly the same way, but perhaps not as extreme as the National Party. It obviously wants to close the gap with National. National is promising even looser migration settings, even less public investment, even lower taxes, and is responding in kind. Um, I don't see, to be honest, any uh, potential for that median voter consensus in favour of the status quo changing any time before October the 14th. But I think the key thing to watch is what happens in the immediate aftermath of that announcement from Anthony Albanese expected at Anzac Day and what happens to our immigration numbers, that escape valve in our high-churn economy. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was the Dawn Chorus, my daily podcast from the Kaka. Kaki te hanau.